Everyone knows that to get rich is glorious, but what happens after you get rich? Do you actually have any control over how that wealth transforms you and your behaviour? Quite a serious question, isn't it? I'm Angus Stewart, and you're listening to episode 14 of the Translated Chinese Fiction Podcast. Our book for this episode is Empires of Dust by Jiang Zilong, published by Elaine Charles Asia's Sinoist Books imprint. Uh, the original Chinese version was published in 2008 as Nongmin Diguo, uh, roughly translates as, well, if you can't work it out for yourself, you'll find out in the interview that I'm doing, or that we have this episode. It's me talking to Christopher Payne, one of the book's two translators. Uh, before we get to that, I'll just do the usual plugs. So this podcast has an Instagram, Churchyafik. I'm on Twitter. Angus likes words, and if you want to support the show, there's a Buy Me a Coffee page. You can find it in the show notes if you want to give a one off contribution, if you want to give a wee monthly contribution and get access to the bonus shows that I make for every episode, then you can find our Patreon. You can Google Translated Chinese Fiction Podcast Patreon, or you can find the link in the show notes. That's it for the plugs. I did it quickly this time. So without further ado, let's hear from Christopher. Editor's note here, the audio, my audio at the very start of the interview is weird. I don't know why. Uh, I apologize for that, but it, it does clear up immediately after that just initial part. Right, so we're on the show with Christopher Payne, translator, Empires, another one of its translators. Uh, so, Chris, have you on? Thank you. And I understand that you've just moved back from England to your homeland of Canada. So how's that going? Um, it's going well. It's been a bit of a whirlwind. I think I'm, uh, me personally, I'm still a bit jet lagged because I just kind of uh, returned to Canada about well, almost a week ago now. So it's still kind of reorienting myself to being back home. Uh, thankfully, the family already moved earlier. So uh, it wasn't as though I have to do everything immediately. Uh, so that's made the, the to transition home much easier. It's good to stagger things like that. <laughs> Very much so. So I believe the translators who've been on the show previously have all been freelance translators. Um, but as I understand it, you're not just a translator, you're an academic who's had yes. something like a nine to five job. Is that right? Yes, more or less. Um, so my, I mean, my main career, I suppose, is, is teaching at university. Um, it's not nine to five necessarily, but uh, it's probably longer than that. Okay. But I, I squeeze in time for translation in the evenings and at weekends and so on. So it's, I guess, uh, trying to work around the schedule as much as possible. Okay, um, good to know. Um, yeah, um, so am I right in thinking you're, you work in kind of the East Asian studies field, is that right? Yes, yeah. Um, so my PhD was uh, more specifically in Chinese studies, but my background is East Asia as a whole. And uh, so my second East Asian language is Korean. And I have uh, lived in Korea actually for quite a bit of time. And I've also done uh, not translation work from Korean to English, but I have done quite a bit of research into Korean literature, Chinese literature, Taiwanese literature, and Kind of down even into Southeast Asia, uh, into what they call Sinophone communities. Oh, okay. So, uh, a bit broad, yeah, I guess. Um, but it's good not to be pigeonholed into one kind of small area. Although I yes. guess China and Chinese, the Chinese-speaking world isn't exactly small, but uh, try to keep it as uh, diverse as possible. 
Mm, well, scale is an interesting thing because obviously it's a huge country, but yeah. just doing this podcast, just over 10 episodes, I found that the world of C to E, Chinese to English, isn't that huge. No, it's not. <laughs> That's for sure. Mm. Um, I'm definitely going to ask you some more questions about your background later on, but um, I think it would be good to crack on and talk about the book. But uh, before we do that, sure. is there anything else you'd like to listeners to know about you kind of in advance of talking about the book itself and your work? Um, I guess not specifically, no. I mean, I've been working on Chinese literature now for, gosh, uh, 20 years. So it's wow. been with me for a long time. Uh, that started in the late 90s and uh, kind of spent time in China in the late 90s. Uh, was there for the Hong Kong handover. Uh, oh. We're wit witnessing the after effects of that today. In the yes, news. we are. <laughs> um, so it's been, yeah, it's been a long time with me, I guess, is the only thing I'd like to say. Um, okay. Not always translating, but certainly with it and reading translations and then ultimately doing translations. So it's, um, yeah, it's hard to imagine a life now without Chinese literature, I suppose. Mm, definitely. Um, so... Onto the story itself, the book um, Empires of Dust. It's a very long book. It's got a very big cast, it but does. it's very centered around one guy. So let's do an elevator pitch. Who is this character? What can you tell us about the protagonist? Um, well, the, the protagonist is uh, a man by the name of Guo Zunxian, and um, he's, I guess he's, he's just aspiring to be something more than, than what he is and where he comes from. So he, he comes from this very small kind of poor community in, in the northeast part of China. It's a, a difficult area, difficult land to kind of use for agriculture and so on. Um, so very poor, humble background. But uh, he, he grew up essentially with the changes of, of modern China. So the, the revolutionary kind of warlord periods um, in the early 20th century is where his family story begins. And he's kind of a, a young person at the time. But then he kind of comes of age throughout the, uh, the 1950s and into the 60s. So the tumult of the Cultural Revolution. And then finally, he's, um, he secedes, I guess, in a, in a material sense with the reforms that happened from, from the 1980s onwards. Um, but with that, of course, like every, I guess like many good novels and good stories, there's the, the rise and fall. We all like to see our heroes fall, mm -hmm. uh, it seems. So uh, I think he, he, he kind of matches that trajectory as well. And ultimately you see how, I guess, the material wealth brings with it this, this degree of corruption, in some cases, really extreme corruption. Um, and and he's summarily, I guess, uh, punished for that. But it's um, he's an interesting fellow, I find. Um, his starting as as making coffins in the early days, and kind of to the the, the heights that he does reach. Um, I suppose in many ways he's he's like any character like that. Every man who wants to to do something better for his life and for his family, but. Mm -hmm. um, the more you reach, I guess, the more difficult it it uh, becomes to kind of take hold of that and actually, in a sense, I guess, you forget what it was that you were fighting for or what you were working for in, in the first place. And I think that's kind of what happens to him 
Um, he forgets his family to a degree. I mean, he becomes adulterous and so on yes. and so forth. Whereas very he, much so. Yeah, very much so. Whereas he professes in the early parts <clears throat> of the novel that he would love her forever and so on and so forth. So um, it's a, there's a tragic element, certainly, to the character. Um, and in that sense, I guess it does speak somewhat to to the period that Jiang Zilong is talking about um, with you know, the promise of reform, the promise of opening up, the promise of, I mean, I think there's a phrase that's accredited to uh, Deng Xiaoping that is, uh, to get rich is glorious. It doesn't yep. seem to jive well with uh, socialist values, but um, it's that kind of the promise of something better. And and I guess you don't necessarily realize that there there are costs to pay. It's not just get rich, you... you <laughs> You know, I guess there's the balancing act, and, and in a sense, yeah. he fails on that, you know. Um, spectacularly. Yeah, <laughs> spectacularly. And I guess there's there's some truth in the sense that it does parallel things that you see um, in the news with China with regard to, you know, the, the next official that that is, uh, you know, falls from power because of corruption scandals. Now, mm -hmm. a lot of times these are politically motivated, and I think there's that element in the book as well. Um, but certainly there is, you know, the, the rise and fall, I guess that's that's a good way to sum up him as a character. Um, maybe a bit of a, a cautionary tale, I suppose. Yeah. In some regard. But uh, the writer, Jiang Zilong, kind of comes from what they would what they used to call and some in some, I guess, in some ways they still use the term, but a, a red background. You know, he was. He's yeah. not an intellectual. He wasn't trained. He didn't go to university. He trained rather in, in mechanics and, you know, started out of the farm, went to the factory, all of these types of things. So he's got this unassailable red background. Um, and for mm -hmm. him, I suppose, in a way, looking at the changes in society, it's it's probably quite stark to see these. And and then he, was a, he was a factory boss for a while, right? He was, yes. So he kind of, you know, he went from... In a way, he went from the, the, the poor background that uh, Guo experienced, really, um, and then, you know, worked his way up and became a factory boss, ultimately. And now he's, you know, a, a well-respected author in, in China as this kind of a model, a model writer, as they might have said once upon a time. Yeah. Um, and just just to clarify, that was a, a factory boss under the communist system. Is that right? Um. Actually, he yes, it was still under the communists. It would have been under the state-owned enterprises, yes, yes. So ostensibly under the communist system. But it was in the the, the period of market market uh, marketization and opening up. Uh -huh. right. It wasn't uh, under necessarily the the traditional form of of state ruled kind of dictates and stuff like that in terms of five year plans. They still have five year plans, but it's they're not the same as they used to be, I suppose. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, so it's a state-owned enterprise is, is uh, the phrase that they would use. Yeah. Um, now, when I was trying to think of a, a Western parallel character for uh, Guo, I suppose there's plenty of tragic heroes who rise and fall, but um, probably the state goes in towards the end of the novel when he's getting sadistic. I think the words, at least the, in the English, your English version, the words sadistic or sadism pops up a few times. It reminded me of Daniel Plainview from the film There Will Be Blood, Right. And he's just yelling abuse at people. His was it his uh, his adopted son and uh, minister who was his long long time rival. Um, mm -hmm. 
And I, when I went to look at Daniel Plainview's Wikipedia page, he got described as a protagonist villain. Right. So do, would you say he's a, our, our, our hero's a protagonist villain? And do you think he's got any Western twins that, you, that immediately spring to mind? Um, I think the phrase protagonist villain uh, is a great way to describe Guo. Uh, and it, I think it does kind of sum him up. Um, other Western characters that kind of jump out to me. I was trying to think about this, uh, mm. how we could parallel things. And I think it's difficult to say because for Jiang, he's very much writing within the Chinese context of things. Absolutely, um, yeah. And he doesn't necessarily, I mean, even reading his other works, for instance, um, he doesn't necessarily see this beyond the Chinese kind of sphere. Um, and it, in a sense, I suppose there is that insular quality to Jiang's writing, that he's very much a, a, a Chinese writer writing for a, a Chinese market, um, which may, I guess in a way kind of makes it difficult to, to pitch this book overseas to an English yeah. market because it is so focused on China. It is such a, a specific story to them. And, and for Chinese readers, um, this rise and fall that he that the main character goes through, it, it it's echoed in newspapers, it's echoed in in the news broadcasts and the evening news and so on and so forth. So for them, it it would probably seem very intimate, very visceral for them. Um, but yeah, it's a, I think protagonist villain is a great phrase. I, I mean, I wasn't familiar with it, uh, but I think it's a great way of of describing Watson for sure. Well, I remember when I was eighteen or 17 browsing around on the website TV, TV Tropes, there's all these endless arguments about whether a character is an anti-hero or a heroic villain. There's all, there's all these different variations on blurring between hero and villain. <clears throat> and I suppose, I don't know, I always felt that they were a bit arbitrary. They all mean roughly the same thing. Mm -hmm. uh, but anyway, um, speaking of terms to describe um, Guo, there is um, a piece of vocabulary I learned quite early on in my time in China, one that I would use to get a laugh. Uh, it was tu hao. Do you know tu hao? <laughs> tu hao, yes. Yeah. Would you say guo's yeah, a, no. a tu hao? Yeah, I think that's another good description for him as well, for sure. Um, there, I mean, there's lots of other slang, I suppose, that you could probably use for it. But uh, yeah, I, I would agree tu hao is probably a good way of phrasing him. Could you teach uh, us? describing? Another piece of slang for the listeners? Um, well, the one that I actually kind of like um, was used, it's a Beijing dialect. It's uh, referring nice. to somebody as uh, the Laoar, so old too. But it was uh. used in the 60s for, uh, for Confucius and for Lin Biao. Um, but I always oh. kind of liked that phrase where they would call him Kung Zi Laoar. So basically Confucius the prick. <laughs> um, or you know you could probably be more colorful with that if you wanted to yeah um but and i think there's a quality to godsen that he becomes a prick later on in the story i think he you know his his positive qualities as this family man hard worker and stuff is somewhat uh dampened as the novel progresses and he becomes you know a sadistic person he becomes a, yeah. a nasty person so you know, you would think of, you know, my boss is a prick type of thing. I think that would probably be uh, quite apropos. Yes, definitely. Um, so we, you talked a bit about how this is a particularly um, 
Chinese book or even a particularly mainland Chinese book in its own context. And when I was uh, reading this book, I did some reading around looking for English language articles on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I found a good one on the South China Morning Post, and I found a good uh, review of the book or an informative review of the book by a uh, former guest of the show and your fellow Canadian countryman, uh, Dylan Levi King. And they both introduced me to the term reform novel, which in my ignorance, I'd, I'd never come across before. <laughs> and they, it seemed like uh, Jiang is maybe the best or most textbook example of an author who writes reform novels. Uh, but you probably could explain better than me what a reform novel is and how well Empires of Dust fits that category. So could could you do that for the listeners? Sure. Um, I mean, I guess a, a bit of extra context to where this term reform novel comes from. Mm-hmm. Um, if you think of the, the Cultural Revolution ending in 1976 and the uh, re-emergence of uh, different literary styles that, that come in the aftermath of it, that, I mean, the... the Probably the more well-known would be scar literature, yes. which uh, you had early translations into English and so on and so forth about the trauma of, of the the Cultural Revolution and so on. And then there was this, uh, throughout the 1980s, there was this subsequent development of multiple literary styles. So in poetry, you have what's called misty poetry, mm-hmm. um, and Beidal would be an example there. And then you get um, the Search for Roots literature. And I think the Search for Roots literature well-known people like um, Moyan and these people that kind of emerge out of this group. You have an experimental literature. And to be fair, um, reform literature is kind of a retroactive title that's put to certain works of literature that come out um, during the 19, from the mid-1980s onwards. So it wasn't always a a common, I guess, a genre type. Um, Mm. the, The literature existed but it, um, the title itself kind of happens afterwards. So when I was first studying, it was always search for roots literature, or experimental literature that happens with uh, Yuhua and these people who are very well known internationally. Um, right. And then you have these other writers like Jiang who are working on their literature at the same time, but they don't necessarily fit into these categories of say search for roots, which is looking at more Chinese traditions in the past and trying to reconnect or recreate some kind of sense of, uh, you know, long history of China. So reform literature, I guess the best qualities of it or characteristics of it are the ones that deal more with the present day things that China was going through in the 1980s and into the 1990s. So in Mm -hmm. a sense, I suppose they're a continuation of socialist realism which would yeah. have been the dominant form throughout the 1950s and so on, except they they steer away from what socialist realism became during the Cultural Revolution, which was more revolutionary romanticism. Yeah. Where it was, you know, the glories of the revolution, the utopia they're building. It stops um, being realistic. It stops being realistic, yeah, precisely. So I think that's where writers like Tiang, um, that's where they found their niche. They're, they're continuing this tradition of realistic writing that's very grounded in the realities of the period and of course from the 1980s onwards it's the reform period um Mm -hmm. although the way they were talking about it wasn't necessarily in in those terms um insofar as that with 1989 of course and what happens in Beijing and Tiananmen at that time 
the there's this what they call a Beijing winter kind of uh, returns and so into the the first couple of years of the 1990s you don't really um, I guess the academic circles when you're looking at literature of that period it's it's very tentative in how we're going to describe this and how we're going to talk about this because of the associated politics of cultural production so then in the 1990s when things kind of open up again that's where you really get the opening up period i suppose after what they say uh, they, they kind of started with deng xiaoping's 1993 tour of the south oh yes um, and that's the return i guess of china and the opening up of it into the the world community and the market and really when marketization kind of takes place and with marketization of course you get corruption um yep. and and you know the the temptations of money and so on so that's where you get this, then you get a retroactive turn kind of put on reform literature and say, yeah, wait a minute, this is literature that's writing about, you know, the the, the decentralization of the economy, the, the selling off of state-owned enterprises, uh, the, you know, the, the, the shift from, from socialist economics to, you know, uh, socialism with Chinese characteristics, which is... You know, in many ways, a more laissez-faire type of capitalism than you have in, say, the UK or, or in North America. Indeed, uh, yeah. So that that's where the term comes from. It's, I guess, so in a sense, I look at it as an academic, as a kind of continuation of socialist realism, but it's realism about the reforms, about the 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 positive things, and of course, the negative things that have that have come with reform. Yeah. I, um, Does that help answer it, I guess? Uh, yeah, that's a really good answer. Um, I don't remember uh, Dung's name popping up too much in the novel, but um, no. I definitely felt like it was kind of a Dung novel. Yes, <laughs> it certainly is. I mean, yeah. he's in the background, and then that's the thing. It's this idea of what well, I mentioned before, the the phrase that Dung may have said, that get rich is glorious, Uh there's also, I think, if I remember the the question about the doesn't matter what color the cat is, yep. so long as it catches the mice and these types of things. So he's he's there certainly in the background of the novel. Um, so as I was reading, I I did feel that it was definitely kind of telling the story of reform, and in a way that was more or less in step with, I guess, the CCP's official story of the highs and the lows of mm-hmm. and why things had to change um but there was there, in the novel there is some pretty striking depiction and criticism uh, of what you could say is the insanity of the cultural revolution um just so people who haven't read the book um know what i'm talking about there's a couple wee excerpts i printed out that i'm gonna read let me just shuffle my papers and find them sure i'm gonna shuffle them obnoxiously so everyone hears <laughs> right. So here's the first one. It's um, from what I remember, this is a character giving a speech on the village stage or village center during the kind of peak of the Cultural Revolution. Mm-hmm. So he says, rebellious comrades, we see the problem here. It's totally clear. Taiwan has its bald leader, old nasty Chiang Kai-shek, who still longs to reclaim the mainland. The Soviet Union, too, has its bald master, the vile revisionist Khrushchev. <laughs> We never thought that Guo Dian would have its own. A man who plays at being crazy. No doubt they're all in league together. One big family of bald counter-revolutionaries. <laughs> so, a character is being denounced for being bald. And there's another <laughs> one. 
I think this one's an after the fact one. I mean, you, we can't trust the bald man, right? <laughs> That's why I don't trust my dad. Okay. Um, oh no, not this one. Yes. Um, so this, I think this is Guo after the fact of the uh, Cultural Revolution, kind of having a pop at it. So he says, we've all seen how it works. To put it bluntly, to be poor is glorious, to be left-wing is even more glorious, and causing a riot is great. If you're a good actor, you can get away with it, and anyone who just goes with the flow ends up in power. So, pretty cynical, bitter <laughs> take on the whole thing. Um, so what question was I going to ask about all this? Yeah, um, were you surprised by any of these contents of the book as you were um, reading through it? Or do you think it's not too shocking, given that it's kind of kosher in China to talk this way about the Cultural Revolution? Um, I wasn't wholly shocked by it, I have to say, uh, because as you just said, I think it is kind of kosher to talk about the Cultural Revolution and the insanities of it. Um, and I think that's kind of expected to some extent um it would be strange for instance if he were to kind of uh, uh applaud the cultural revolution or you know talk about only you know the positive things if there were any right. that came out of it and so on so i think there is an element that there's an expectation now that you you can <laughs> criticize it but um what i enjoyed with reading jiang's was the the, the humor that came with it uh, yeah there's that dark humor in his description of it. So it wasn't just coming out and saying this was madness or these, these policies were crazy because if you read the, 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 I guess the words for their surface value, it looks as though he's talking about, yeah, how these things were good. And, you know, you could say going with the flow is, is good advice in any time period. Um, but at the same time, is that the moral quandary, I suppose that comes up with this, you know, denouncing someone because they're bald or, or going along with the flow when you know how wrong things are and so on and so forth. So that's where I, I enjoyed uh, those sections and the, the dark humour that, that's there with them. Um, but yeah, I guess I wouldn't say totally shocked by it or surprised by it. I've seen actually much, much worse, or I guess mm -hmm. worse is not the right way to describe it, but much more... Um, much more penetrating criticism of the cultural revolution in literature um, and even more specifically, you know, naming the party uh, ah. as the culprit, whereas Jiang kind of doesn't do that. Indeed, um, yes. It's never the party that's done this. It's, it's people at the time that take advantage of the policies and the craziness um, and, you know, they, they go too far. And I think there's the expectation in the novel that ultimately the party will root out these elements so yeah a good element becomes a bad element that gets rooted out and there's this self-corrective kind of procedure that the party goes through uh periodically um and i think yeah. that i mean if you look at it parallel today that's xi jinping's anti-corruption drive is, is seen as another iteration of that that the party is correcting itself um you know things kind of get out of hand that people take advantage of it but the the uh, the institution itself is not the problem. It's it's you know these vile kind of uh, people within it that, that that take advantage of the situation. Yep, and that can just go on until the end of time. Sounds great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> right. So after all this uh, dark talk, I've got some lighter questions. Um, do you have a favorite moment in the novel? 
Um, yeah, actually, my favorite moment is a dark moment. It's um, yes, good. very early on when they're they're. Uh, it's during the the food supplement period when they're trying to uh, feed the the people that are enduring famine, and they the the, the party kind of offers this contest to the <clears throat> villages in the area and the village that can make the most food out of no materials is the winner. And I, yes. I just absolutely love that section, um, the absurdity of it all. I mean, I'm a great fan of uh, absurdity and absurdist theatre and these types of things. And the way that that particular chapter, I think it's chapter three, maybe four, um, mm -hmm. the way it's pitched as this is kind of real. These are, you know, there's uh, the... The, uh, the quotation at the beginning of the chapter that kind of reads as an official document that these are real things that they were doing and and the I guess the seriousness that the the contest was pitched at that yeah you will win if you can make the most food with nothing and I loved it I was I laughed out loud when I was translating it kind of thing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so um, yeah it was a favorite moment in the novel definitely I guess it's really dark when you think about it incredibly yeah but um, I don't know I've always kind of enjoyed those types of things I, I remember watching uh, Pulp Fiction in the cinema and when they're arguing about uh, the quarter pounder with cheese and then they blow the the guy sitting in the back seat blow his head off i laughed i thought it was this is an absurd scene it's violent it's gruesome but it was you, how can you not laugh at the absurdity of it all mm. so well to to add a somber note um i was kind of prepped for those sections of the book because i'd been doing a uh, research for my dissertation and the start of that involved just surveying what translated Chinese things were available. So I made a trip to uh, my local library, which at that time was the Edinburgh Central Library, and I found a great big hardback copy of Tombstone. I think it's that Yang Jisheng that wrote what? that. Do you know that yeah, one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, I, I do, read, yeah. Yeah, I, I didn't, I only had it for a library borrow and I had lots of stuff to read, but uh, I was captivated enough to get through, I don't know, a few hours worth of it. And Oh man, given that it was just the very opening segments of the book and the kind of numbers of and, and the policies that are described, um, it's dark. It's shocking. But, it's, but I suppose through yeah, the lens of fiction, it's in some ways easier to process. I would think so, yeah. I mean, I guess that's that's what... Uh, I mean, if you think of, of, of uh, a European tradition, I mean, it's tragedy, that's what we need we need to see these tragic works we need to see the gruesomeness of life that's where we get that catharsis i suppose of being able to, <clears throat> to deal with the the darkness of it um because i mean i guess if you speak of or think of trauma and uh, one of the ways of looking at it psychologically is that it's trauma is something that you can't narrativize you can't put into words hence it's traumatic mm. uh, and then the way to deal with it of course is to try and verbalize it try and put it you know give it a story trying to make it something that can be thought about um and certainly that's i guess what yang Sheng is doing with tombstone it's is putting this into words not only for an audience to to read about the horrors of this because it's important to know but also i think for himself um to put these into words to process this this traumatic period um in his personal life Mm -hmm. um, and I think there's an element of that in Empires of Dust too, whether it's it's the dark bits of the Cultural Revolution, the the, the famine that precedes it, and then also the reform, uh, because I think 
Xiang, like many other people at that time, probably put a lot of faith in the reform and opening up um, mm -hmm. and really believed what this was doing in terms of, of you know, so-called bringing China back to the international stage and, you know, its rightful place. I, I don't necessarily subscribe to these ideas. I don't know what country has a rightful place on the world stage, whatever that may be. Big ones. But I think, <laughs> big ones, I guess. But I think there's an element there that, that certainly Tiang believed in that. And then once you witness what happens with this, the corruption, um, that I think becomes very difficult to deal with, that these mm -hmm. promises that they were kind of given, that this is going to, to reform China um, and open up the system, that, that to see it kind of twisted in the way that it has been in terms of these corruption cases, which, you know, you seem to hear a new one every day. Um, mm -hmm. I think there is an element of trauma that continues for them um, yeah. in a certain way, not to the same degree, I suppose, as the Cultural Revolution. You don't have the same degree of violence, but I think it is still a traumatic experience for them to, to see what's happened. And, you know, there is a concern for the future in that sense of, of where it's going. Um, we seem to have gotten quite dark again. Yes. <laughs> but I, I mean, I guess but a way of dealing with tragedy and, and trauma is through humor, yes. I think. And, I, and that certainly comes out in that my favorite section of the book. And I think in other places throughout the novel as well, um, you kind of have to laugh at the, the humor of it, the absurdity of it. And I think mm -hmm. that's that cathartic experience that you can get from it. Um, well, you mentioned earlier before we, we technically began, you sit and watch the newspapers about Brexit in a bemused uh, fashion. <laughs> so maybe well, that's yeah. I mean, the uh, same type of approach. I was, whilst we had Theresa May as our leader, I was regularly disappointed, but comfortable in the fact that at least we didn't have a clown as our leader, like mm -hmm. our neighbours across the pond do. And now we do. We have uh, another bleach bond clown, so send yeah. in the clowns. You know. Send in the clowns, indeed. Yeah, um, I'm quite envious of um, countries with more bland leaders like China. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, so, um, keeping the on the theme of bits of the novel that pop out as, um, I did think, apart from our central character Guo Sunxian, uh, Guo Sun. It is Shen, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Shen. Making myself look really informed here. Um, <laughs> apart from him, I think quite a lot of the characters were a bit 2D or flat. Um, but I did think there were moments where they do kind of pop. They have good yes. character moments. Were there any kind of secondary characters who you latched onto or who you think had some kind of scene-stealing moments? I mean, the grandfather. Uh, yes, definitely. I mean, that, he, beside Guo, I mean, he was probably, actually, the grandfather was probably my favorite character, um, more so than Guo, uh, because I just like that kind of character. I liked it. I enjoyed translating it. I enjoyed, you know, the scenes where he's in the novel and then the kind of craziness that he gets up to and, you know, climbing up into the tree that's filled with snakes and so on and so forth. Um, I love those moments. I, it was, you know, you're kind of reading it and translating it and, and they do kind of stick out to me. Mm -hmm. um, he so kind yeah, of I guess, felt like he'd sneaked in from a different book to me. Yes, yeah, for sure. And I think in, in the early part of the novel, when you 
uh, foresee what's happening and you hear the stories of the phoenix trees and so on and so forth that you really kind of it, i was wondering where the novel was going to take me because Absolutely. it had this kind of mysticism to it or the magical element type magical of thing realism. It, 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 yeah well exactly in, in uh, the latin american tradition and mm. uh, it changes from that afterwards very yeah. much so yeah a bit of a tease for sure which is interesting um if insofar as that uh, the uh, magical realism of latin american literature was um, incredibly popular in the 1980s in uh -huh. china um, and you had people uh, engaging with Borges, particularly, uh, mm. and Borges' work. And so you get authors like Gefei and Yuhua and uh, Ma Yuan, and, and there's several more that you could talk about, that really just were, were transfixed by magical realism. So in a sense, I guess, Jiang was growing up in that period, was writing in that period, and so on and so forth. So he, in the same way, I'm sure he was exposed to that, Type of literature as well yeah um, so it kind of seeps into the novel i suppose um in in a way that's unexpected especially if you compare empires of dust to his earlier works when you they're much more well they're they're more they're shorter for instance for one uh for uh, one characteristic of them and they're they're much more realistic um mm. than and these elements that you do you see in moments in empires of dust where that's a little bit yeah, it, it, it stretches the boundaries of what's realistic and what isn't, I suppose. Yep. Um, there's probably remember, a study or an article at least to, to write about that, maybe. For sure. I remember when I was in my, I think, first and second year in China, visiting some bookshops. Um, Chinese, I think there were, like the first place I lived in, there was no English language bookshop, but there was a fairly large Xinhua or something uh, bookshop. And <laughs> I remember they would have little stacks of their Western classics and there was always a Gabriel Garcia Marquez in there. Yes. And then I noticed it more after moving to Shanghai. Um, so yeah, I, I, I could see maybe the legacy of that um, mm -hmm. surge in popularity, uh, if not necessarily when it was happening. And I just read, just this year, I read um, The Garden of Forking Paths by Borges. Have you read that okay. one? No, I haven't actually. Well, it's uh, the the narrator is Chinese, um, and he's I think he's from he has some kind of German connection as well. I don't know if he's a Chinese um, Qingdao Qingdao guy. Um, right. Okay. But the not to spoil it too much, but there there is like a lot of Borges stories. There's a text that it's mm -hmm. a kind of a story about a book, a magical book of some sort, and it's right. a book. That book is a Chinese book, weirdly enough. Yeah, there's well, there's a lot of that. I mean, it, uh, Borges' Chinese Labyrinth is kind of one of the well-known examples, um, mm. and they talk on it. And I mean, in that sense, Borges is carrying on a tradition that Ezra Pound, um, in in the the late 1800s, kind of in early 20th century, enjoyed, where he envisioned uh, Chinese characters as a way of writing modern literature, modern poetry, because they were all little symbols of something else that you could then expound upon the symbolic possibilities of one singular Chinese character. Um, right. And certainly there you get that in, in magical realism as well. So a, a kind of continuation of a modernist impulse that I guess fantasizes about a Chinese character and, and it's, it's a, uh, it's the possibilities of meaning that you can can see with it, um, and so yeah, it was. It's it's 
interesting how certain kind of traditions cross-pollinate each other mm-hmm. where you know you get a Chinese tradition kind of uh, inspiring pound and then later on other writers throughout Europe and then into Latin America and then you get magical realism with Mar- uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez and and so on kind of pollinating the a revival of Chinese literature in the 1980s. It's I find it really fascinating these kind of transcultural translation kind of pollinating traditions. It's it's yeah. uh, it's a fascinating kind of area um, that's that oftentimes overlooked. Yeah, that one's especially interesting because it sidesteps the Anglosphere. You know, the Anglo-American yes. world of literature. Yeah, yeah, um, no, very much. So. I, I mean, there's probably there there's an element of politics in that as well. Um, yeah. Insofar as that China saw itself as as uh, the leader of the the non-aligned movement, what we used to call the third world, and so on and so forth, and Latin yes. America was part and parcel of that. So there was a lot of kind of discussions that that yeah sidestepped the Anglosphere um, and, and kind of continued on into the 80s and into the 90s. I mean, I think even some of the revolutionary groups in Latin America still refer to themselves as Maoists. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. So there is, it's strange how these things work. Um, yes, politics is definitely crazy. Um, <laughs> so speaking of cultural transmission, um, I'd like to go to phase two. I'm going to ask you some things about translation, the translation sure. of this book. Um, so I mentioned at the start of the show that you're actually just one of the books, two uh, C2E, Chinese to English translators. So uh, who was your colleague? And how did you two go about working together uh, on this project? Sure. Um, well, my colleague is uh, Olivia Milburn. She's a professor at Seoul National University in Korea, uh, UK national, actually. I met okay. uh, well. I met Olivia when I was um, doing my PhD at SOAS at University of London, and uh, she had graduated, I think, a couple of years before me, and was doing some teaching uh, while while working on other projects and stuff. And that's how we first met. And then um, she ended up, I went to Korea. I was working in, in uh, university there in Korea while I was finishing up my PhD. And then she got this position at Seoul National. And so we kind of reconnected then when we were both in the same country. And uh, we've actually collaborated on two other books before oh, yeah. Empires of Dust. Now so, I know um, one of them, it's Decoded, is that right? Yes, yeah, decoded. So we worked on uh, Mai Jia, who yes. is uh, another contemporary author in China, and uh, we did his uh, decoded Jiemi, and then we also did uh, his second novel uh, called in well in the English translations in the dark or Answan, and um, so we did those, and it was a great kind of collaboration. We really enjoyed working together. It was a good way to kind of um, deal with translating. Or the demands of translating, and at the same time, the demands of writing academic work. Mm. Um, so, as a, an academic, we were also required to, you know, publish research essays and so on and so forth. That's that's, I guess, our nine to five job uh, type of thing. So, it was a good way to work on it. We've got a kind of the same sensibility when we come to looking at literature and so on and so forth. She's mm. her specialism is actually uh, ancient China. But we're both okay. big avid readers of contemporary Chinese literature. And uh, I remember her telling me that she wanted to read more and she started choosing the uh, Mao Dun winners. So Mao Dun, very famous Chinese writer from the yes. early 20th century, 
literature prize and so on and so forth. Um, so we started, yeah, we were just reading and comparing notes and then we we kind of uh, submitted a sub sample for Maitya and it was accepted and that kind of started the collaboration. Um, Sweet. And, and then afterwards with uh, Empires of Dust, um, I was the one that was first approached by it because I happened to be in the UK where um, Alan Charles Asia is based. Yes. And um, they, so they contacted me about my interest in translating. And I first looked at the novel and saw it's 700, 800 pages. You were <laughs> and, like, ah! Yeah, well, exactly. I was like, I don't think I have the time to do all of this myself because there was a, a deadline to, to kind of having it finished. Um, so then I reached out to Olivia again and I said, you know, how about we work on another novel together? And um, she was excited about it. And yeah, we, we kind of, we talked with um, ACA and, and they were happy to, to, for us to, to do it together. And um, yeah, so we went on and did it. I mean, I guess our, our process of working on it, we, we talk a lot about the story, we'll email back and forth type of thing about the novel, trying to work on you know, names and titles and these types of things and working on the tone. So we would exchange pieces as we progressed through the novel. We kind of divided it up. Uh, ironically, it's uh, Empires of Dust is 30 chapters and it, it broke up into uh, 15 each. Um, okay. I don't know how Jiang managed to do that, but in terms of kind of uh, dividing it up, it was, it was good that we could kind of separate it half and half. Yep. And um, yeah, so as we progress through it, of course, we're both reading each other's sections and trying to match up tone and so on and so forth. And then once we we get the final kind of uh, the whole manuscript finished, we would then reread each other's work again to make sure there's a, a consistent kind of narrative flow mm -hmm. through it. And uh, then we had editors, of course, at ACA, which is uh, which is great. They have in-house editors, which. Yeah. Uh, it's a valuable resource. It's an incredibly valuable resource because our experience with Penguin, with uh, Maitya, is that they, they farmed out the editors. Even and Penguins? Even Penguin, yeah. Oh so they God. had freelancers and it was, I think we ended up working with two or three over the course of it. So there was more work for us to do in the sense of making sure that everything kind of matched style-wise and so on and so forth. So it was great that ACA has them in-house. Um, and we work with Martin and David, and uh, yeah, I think it, the final product came out came out well. There's still things that we could maybe, um, I guess, polish up a little bit. There was, I think, uh, Dylan mentioned it in his review about the measurements and stuff like that. I think uh, we put in how much is a, a moo and how much is a lee and these yeah. types of things. Some of these um, brackets jarred me a bit. Yeah, and I think um, that's something that we should probably should have thought more about and probably should have gotten rid of before. There's In translating, there's always this element of um, trying to make the text as accessible to an English reader as yeah. possible. Um, but at the same time, you also have this requirement to be filial to the original. Um, mm -hmm. And then you don't want to clog up the bottom of the page with footnotes as well. Yeah, exactly. Um, and that was something we tried to avoid as much as possible was footnotes. We probably could have had a lot more. We did have a few, um, yes. but I, I, I think we did well to kind of reduce the number of footnotes. And then the thing with measurements and other specific things that certain words, um, 
I didn't really like translating the measurements into the metric system or the imperial system. Mm. Uh, I wanted to keep the Chinese character, the, the, the words themselves in there because yeah. it adds an element to it. You're not talking necessarily about uh, the same world as you would if you're reading an English novel and stuff. And mm. it's that balancing of, I think it's important for a reader to see that this is a translated work and it's a different way of looking at the world. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you want it as accessible as possible and that it flows well for them. So it's, yeah. it's that balancing out those two demands, I suppose. Um, yeah, and especially for such, a, that's difficult. for such a specific book, such a big book, it's only mm -hmm. going to be more tricky. Yes, yeah, it was. Um, yeah. But it's great. I mean, Olivia and I, we, we've... I, we have a good kind of working relationship in that regard that we're able to kind of communicate frequently with each other and kind of put stuff <clears> together and then feedback on each other's work and so on and so forth. So um, she's gone on and done other projects. So have I, um, we haven't had a, another tome uh, to, to work on, but I'm certain that uh, should something else, you know, that warrants probably two translators in terms of size, um, we'll definitely be working together again. Uh, in the future for sure excellent thank you for that um detailed answer um so i've got a wee question um about swearing in this book i'm gonna read an excerpt on it let me sure. just find it shuffle my papers do, 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 do. here we go okay so i think i forget i think this isn't the narrator i think this is the author himself writing but seems to be kind of from Guo's perspective. Take a football stadium. That is an excellent place to scream insults at other people. Who would feel uncomfortable shouting abuse in a place like that? Alternatively, you can write anonymous letters or hurl abuse at other people right to their faces. You can also curse X when you mean Y. Curse because you might as well. Curse and then discover that nobody is paying the blindest bit of attention. And even though you know there is no point, you still carry on. You can use the insults hurried at the football to complain about how useless your boss is, about problems at the factory, about the fact that you haven't had a raise or a promotion, about the fact soci that society is rotten to the core, that life is pointless and your fate is horrible. Bang. <laughs> so there's quite a lot of anger in the book. There wasn't any swearing there, but um, when I was starting to sniff around for other podcasts about CTE books, I found one Nicky Harmon did about the chili the chili bean paste clan and mm -hmm. about the challenges of translating local and national Chinese swear words. Um, did you have any challenges with that? Uh, it's, to some extent, I would maybe say yes, uh, thinking of Empires of Dust, but there isn't a lot of kind of um, very specific swears that would be very much part of of northeast china where he comes from and and where the novel is set um i think there's that's partly probably partly due to the fact that he is under writing under this rubric of reform literature um and there's an expectation that you don't necessarily use the coarsest language possible um, mm -hmm. and there's a whole kind of this discussion we could have about that when you think of other authors uh that have become internationally well-known like Yang Ge and Yuha before them where language and, and violence kind of uh, in some senses it's the selling point um, or marketing point for these works. I don't think Empires of Dust necessarily has that 
it's 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 interesting because I guess it's the way we think about it. I mean, as an undergraduate student looking or reading first these novels in translation, I I enjoyed reading it um, and, and the, the language was, it felt kind of very visceral in that sense. And then I remember looking back and reading, um, I think it was Souton's Rice, and I mm -hmm. read the, uh, the translation of it, I believe it was, and then I read the original of it, and then I kind of compared, and the phrase Tamada, um, his mother, basically, is, is how it's, you know, that's that's the literal translation of it, his mother's yes. something. Um, but as we know, that's not generally how it's translated. It's, it's normally, you know, motherfucker or something a bit more colorful. Yes. Um, so it's it's interesting how, I guess, we approach those types of things. So with Jiang, there was those kind of, I don't know, standard swears, I suppose. Okay. Um, so they, we did have F-bombs and stuff throughout the novel in certain sections where it seemed appropriate. Um, we did have uh, moments when we could speak with Jiang. Um, oh, he's awesome. quite elderly. Um, so he was originally, actually, the plan was to have him visit the UK uh, while we were finishing up the novel and we were going to do a little bit of publicity with him and stuff. But he's, he's quite an elderly fellow. Um, yeah. And it was... It, Ultimately, he couldn't make that trip, and it was a real shame because I think it would have been it would have been fun to have him there when we when we kind of released the book itself. Um, Absolutely, or at least some advanced publicity to talk about those types of things. So, yeah, I'm. It's it's. A, it, I didn't find that there were any real specific challenges in dealing with. It. Maybe I'm familiar with bad language. I'm not sure in the Chinese context. Um, oh, okay, I could. Uh, I remember the, the learning early on and learning Chinese, the swearing, basically cursing somebody to back 18 generations as kind of the, the ultimate swear that you could use type yeah. of thing. Um, so maybe I got that experience, I don't know, early on. <laughs> and I'm quite familiar with it. But um, so, yeah, there weren't really specific challenges. Um, and it's interesting for me, I just finished um, Jia Pingwa's novel, Lao Sheng. Um, yep. And that was had, I mean, Jia Pingwa is very famous for his colloquialisms, the Shanxi yeah. dialect and so on and so forth. And um, to be honest, I actually, I didn't find it intimidating. There were moments where you're kind of wondering what exactly is he trying to say here? But the resources that we have um, online and so on and so forth, and so much of this is now catalogued because there is such an interest in, in China of of the different variations of how words are used and so on and so forth mm, that yeah to me I, I maybe it's because I'm a researcher as well um, and I enjoy I mean sometimes I could spend you know a day not actually translating very much because I'm researching on terms and different words and so on and so forth um, so I guess that's a challenge in a sense, but it was, for me, it was always really interesting. And you kind of see all these different links and, and find out all these other different words and then try and think about how I can use them in the next time I'm speaking with somebody and stuff. Mm. So, um, yeah, I suppose it, the challenge is there in some regard, but in the looking at it from a different perspective, um, I think that sometimes is, is overstated. Um, I think that, there, there are ways of finding out that information and having this, um, 
ability to communicate with the authors, of course, is is vital. You know that you can yeah. actually speak with the author and say, "Look, this is a word. This is maybe how I've I've read up about it online." Um, or through whatever resources I have at my disposal, is this really what you're trying to get at? And um, it's great that we've, certainly with the help of ACA, been able to kind of facilitate those lines of communication. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly modern technology helps with that because, you know, we've got our WeChat or whatever type of thing that we can ask these more immediate questions. WeChat um, is a gift from the gods. It's yeah, so very much so. So it's yeah, so it's challenging, yes, but um, I, I look, I always enjoyed it. I, I kind of embraced that type of thing, um, and I didn't find it as much with Empires of Dust as I did working on Jiapingwa's novel, um, mm-hmm. and that's I think not surprising um, in so far as different locations of where they're from and so on and so forth, and the different ways that they approach writing. Yeah. Now, speaking of ACA, uh, a wee birdie at ACA told me you've got a good story about how you came up with the English title for uh, this book. Could you tell us a little bit about its tra- the translation of its Chinese title into an English title? So, Empires of Dust. Um, well, I can't take all the credit there. It was it's certainly a discussion amongst several people. Um, mm-hmm. Daniel was involved with it as well and stuff. That's Daniel of Aline Charles Asia. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I guess the Nongmen Diwo, if you want a literal translation, it's peasant empire mm-hmm. uh, or farmer empire. Um, but we, I guess in discussions, it was trying to think of, of a phrase or a different way of putting it as opposed to simply using peasant in the title. Um, and then empires of dust, was kind of hit upon and the words used for it. I, I, for me, it was immediate that um, it kind of, I, I, I guess for me growing up, thinking of what I read growing up and so on, it, there was an echo of Grapes of Wrath by John Steinbeck. Okay, uh, the, the Dust Bowl. Yeah, the Dust Bowl. And, and maybe growing up in North America, we learned so much about that in school. Uh, the prairies and how they became this kind of big, huge dust bowl, and and the 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 problems associated with it, and and, and the great kind of uh, difficulties in dealing with this, and people being displaced, and so on and so forth. Right. And to me, that's there's an echo of that in Empires of Dust, or in Longmen Diwa. This this idea of of I mean, even the description of Guotiatian in this sunken depression with very poor sand that's, you know, more salt than than soil and so on and so forth. Yeah, I find myself wondering why are they why are they living here? What are they doing? <laughs> Precisely. Why why till this land? Um, and I think that's where I think Empires of Dust kind of resonates with me personally. I think that that's that kind of sums up the story. Um, I, it, certainly for the beginning <clears throat> part, the difficulties of tilling the land, you know, that's why Guo leaves. To, to because there isn't anything that's there in the town that he can make a go of. Um, mm. He builds coffins because people are dying left, right, and center, and that's a growth industry, I suppose. Um, but then even if you want to extend the analogy um, to look at the reforms and what happens with the reforms, and there is this, this element that everything that they create eventually goes up in dust. Um, and, and blows away that that there is a very real kind of 
the environmental impact of the reforms in China and, and the, the destruction or the desertification of, of the North um, mm. and the, the expanding Gobi Desert and all of these types of things that I just, I thought the sound Empires of Dust kind of fit the tone of the novel, I suppose, yeah. um, in a very kind of specific way um, and took it away from this idea of being another farmer novel, another peasant novel. Um, which kind of, I guess, in a sense, is is somewhat of a stereotype of, of Chinese writing. People think of, you know, Pearl Buck and the Good Earth type of thing. Yes. This hearty kind of Chinese farmers that 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 just make do. Or if you want to jump up to say the uh, uh, the the mid eighties with uh, Chen Kaige's uh, Yellow Earth movie, right? The cinema Huang Tudi. This idea of the good, I get it's the good earth, it's the yellow earth that's there, it's these peasants and stuff. Um, but instead of changing it to earth, which has connotations of, you know, uh, awesomeness. And, yeah, and awesomeness and bounty and so on, it's, I think, Xiang's novel is about the, the, the dust. That, that that that's eventually that's where 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 we stand um, in many ways and and in another regard it's eventually that's where we end up it's dust you know yep I remember uh, there's a line in the English translation uh, the earth is a vomiting carcass I remember thinking oh, great that's cheerful <laughs> well that's true I mean eventually I, I mean if to extend it it's it's a vomiting carcass that then swallows us back down oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> because essentially that's that's ultimately where everybody where we all end up um mm. you know interned and dust so it just yeah it seemed to work i thought yeah. um, i think this, it has this an marks, epic feel marks the start of our podcast's halloween period for october <laughs> definitely <laughs> there you go <laughs> yeah um I, we have um, a kind of a parallel at least one novel uh, in scotland called sunset song which is all about a young woman's Live basically living on a farm and her relationship with the land. Right. And yeah, it's it's mostly farming is not fun. The novel, mm. uh, not a pleasant existence, and the stuff your your parallel with the Dust Bowl. Scotland has its own parallel. Um, the Highland Clearances, where capitalism arrived right. and it became more profitable to have sheep on your land than peasants. Yes. Uh, so that's the one we learn in school two or three times throughout the course of the education system. <laughs> and the thing about the desertification, that reminded me of a thing I learned in school about North Africa. Apparently, before okay. the Romans came along, it was quite a green land. Um, but all the nutrients got sucked out of the soil a long time before we were born by intensive right. Roman farming. But yeah, mm -hmm. the depressing yeah, it's, side it's, of agriculture. It is, yeah. Well, in Canada, we, we also learned... Um, we read Margaret Lawrence. So there's another Margaret writer in Canada, uh, not That's like just... the, the famous Margaret Atwood, but Margaret Lawrence. Yeah. Um, and she writes about the prairies. Um, Stone Angel was a novel we read when we were in school, and that's all about the prairies and growing up on the prairies and and the difficulties of farming and, and stuff. And I think it's interesting when we look at kind of in, in certain media today where they kind of picture this bucolic past where it was you know that we lived in a much more balanced relationship with the environment and so on and so forth and if only we could go back to that and, and mm. so on and it's like um, well i like toilet paper too much to do that yeah well i think a lot of it's a myth i i mean yeah like you said i mean the romans going into north africa right this this the 
you know, the, 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 the desertification of North Africa would be an example of that. It is a myth that somehow in the past we had this more bucolic type of environment to enjoy. It's, it's part and parcel of the human condition, I think, um, to, 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 to make use of these resources and tend to overuse them. Yeah. Um, and I think that echoes in Empires of Dust as well. Yeah. I know, like, if you ever look at a map of how big Scotland's ancient pine forests used to be and how much of that ancient forest is left now, it's really depressing. And I remember before I visited Korea, I read that a lot of Korea used to be a forest and those forests are all gone. Yeah. Just totally yeah. gone. Just totally gone. Yeah, no, very much so. I mean, Korea, because uh, I lived uh, about seven years in Korea um, and my partner is Korean. So <laughs> learning a lot about Korea as well. And yeah, it's it's shocking when you think about that and you think about the 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 wildlife that's disappeared and so on and so forth it's and Mm -hmm. so yeah i think and there the echoes of that in empires of dust for sure uh, Mm -hmm. in terms of the relationship that people had with that land yes so moving swiftly on because i do have i've got to i've got to squeeze in a call with aca yeah. And then another call at three about getting a damn job. Um, so I'll ask you some <laughs> questions about yourself. Um, okay. So here's an open-ended question. Uh, be as concise or as long-winded as you wish. Um, oh, no. The question was, what's your connection to China? We've already kind of done that, haven't we? Sure. Yeah, I think yeah. so. Let's skip that one. Um, any pieces of Chinese literature that made an early impact on you? Maybe you've mentioned a few. Could you name like is there one standout piece of Chinese literature that really hit you when you were starting out um that's a good question there's been so much um probably the author uh who is also a uh, professor at Tsinghua University in Chinese literature I remember reading um his flock of brown birds uh and um that had a really profound impact on me. It was at the same time that I was also reading um, Samuel Beckett's uh, three novels. So it's uh, Malone, Malloy Dies and the Unnameable. I think that's the three titles. No, um, I, had, I had no idea. Goes to show yeah, my parents. It, <laughs> well, I was reading those and there's the scene in, in um, the Beckett story where the character has these stones that he sucks on. And then he rotates them through his pocket so that he's never sucking on the same stone um, in succession. So it's always okay. this elaborate kind of process. And while I was reading this not this short story actually by Kofe, uh, there was this riding this bicycle scene in it, and it's this kind of question of what we're doing and the mechanical nature of what we're doing, but really mm. with no kind of purpose of actually doing it or there is a purpose but it's not as if it's a necessary purpose um and it's questioning reality and and all of these types of things and how we perceive the world around us um and it's it's stuck with me that particular story and it was that moment when i was just like this is i'm you know i Chinese literature i never thought of this before i was you know used to the classics the monkey king the water barge and these yeah. types of stories and then i didn't really realize that this was also kind of being produced um in china you have of course lucian in the early 20th century that you read about and you know cry out for save the children but um yes 
Blueface was something different. Um, and then I so I started reading more of his work. And actually, I wrote my master's uh, thesis on Gulfay and oh, his cool. particular literature. So I guess that was really my starting point um, for really delving into Chinese literature and the impact it's had on me. I mean, I did a master's on it and then eventually did a PhD on it. So I guess uh, I should, uh, yeah, hold hold his work up as as something that had a great impact on me. And it's a shame he's. Yeah not been translated very much, <laughs> strangely oh, right. enough. Um, Is, there's a few things out, but not a lot. Right, that could be a good uh, niche kind of author episode for the show. Yeah, well, I think um, Kanan, Kanan Morse, I think I think that's the translator, did um, The Invisibility Cloak, which is um, a more recent work by Kofei. I think that translation came out maybe last year, the year before. Okay. Um, fairly recent, anyways. Um, but it's it's one of Gulfay's more recent works of literature. But I mean, he's been around for quite a well since the the the, uh, the mid eighties. Um, right. And his earlier works are not really translated. There's a few short stories here and there, and his first three novels are not translated, for instance. Um, okay. So publishers and translators, if you're there listening, you <laughs> there's a gold <laughs> mine for you. Yeah, for sure. And I'll take a 2% concession on all takings. <laughs> and obviously you'll get a cut too. Yeah, sounds good. Um, so here's a question. Um, I don't know if any answers will spring to mind. Have you met any real-life Guozunxians, either in China or outside of China? <laughs> um, that's a, yeah, that's a hard question. Don't get me. yourself in trouble. <laughs> I would say I've met people that... After doing the translation, I mean, after reading the book and then doing the translation um, and then reflecting back on people I have met, I would say, yes, I've probably met people that would fit that characterization. Um, but I don't I don't know any of them really kind of personally. I, I don't none of the people that I work with uh, would really kind of delve down that road that war eventually goes on um, but i think there's a, a there's a, a realistic quality to him that there are certainly people in china that are that are like that um, yeah but i think there's people everywhere that are like that absolutely you know? yeah um, whether it's in the uk or europe or north america there, there are people that will take advantage of the situations and there seems to be no bounds mm. to to how far they can go <laughs> we um, definitely have a a high, highly seated womanizer here in the UK right now. <laughs> yeah, not, a, yeah. not a handsome one either. <laughs> yeah, it seems that oftentimes they're not, right? No, um, funny that. <laughs> yeah, some of the um, the kind of dining slash banquet scenes near the end of the novel reminded me of some experiences I had in my first year in small town China, either for like work meals out or sometimes you'd be on a lesser meal but the restaurant owner would see a, a foreigner and yeah. he would go kind of go into like too hao mode and make yeah. you drink and give you food you know <laughs> terrible awful thing i had to suffer being given baijiu <laughs> and free food yeah. but um yeah so one of the last questions i've got for you um I, when i was having a nosy on your academic profile uh, i saw that you'd written a paper on pardon me if i mispronounce this chthonic uh <laughs> an awesome kind of somewhat theatrical black metal band from taiwan yeah. um so I, I saw these guys live at download festival uh, in oh, donington super. in england and they were fantastic and this was yeah. before i knew what taiwan was but i, I, do right, remember, okay. <laughs> I didn't know that they were you know related to china at all 
Um, I, I thought it was somewhere in Southeast Asia, stupidly. But I remember they um, <laughs> they took a smartphone. Uh, sorry, they, they, the guy took out, the singer took out his iPhone, took a picture of the crowd and said something like, I'm sending this to our president. He's a bastard. Fuck him or something. And I, <laughs> I found that really funny. Um, yes. Uh, so have you ever seen this band? Are you a Chinese slash Chinese language rock and metal aficionado? And uh, what's the paper about and how can one read it? Okay. Um, well, yes, I'm a big metal fan. Um, oh, yes. I've been a metal fan for, for, for years. I uh, grew up listening to Slayer and Testament and Metallica and these types of bands and then graduated into grunge and punk and so on and so forth. So, uh, yeah, when I found out that, or we're actually we're living in Taiwan, we used to go to uh, certain pubs and clubs and stuff like that. And every now and then you'd get this local band that all of a sudden they're playing metal, um, which kind of doesn't meet the expectation that you assume. Uh, I mean, internationally you get Canto Pop and Mando Pop and yeah. K-pop and J-pop and all of these other types of things. Uh, so it was actually really cool to see some of these. I've not seen uh, Shanling, is their Chinese name. I've not seen them live, unfortunately. Um, partly, well, I've, I've never been around where I could see them live because I lived in Taiwan in the late in the late 90s um, before they kind of became a presence and so on. Right. Um, so I've missed out. I've, I've communicated with them. I've exchanged kind of emails and stuff when I was working on this particular paper. Oh, awesome. um, so it was great. They're really interesting. I mean, the lead singer is, is a, a member of the legislative UN now in Taiwan. <laughs> Uh, he, he ran for office and won on a ticket promoting uh, Taiwanese independence, hence the fuck our president type of thing. Um, right, he would have been the KMT in charge at that time, I think. Yes, right? yeah, yeah, it would have been Mangjio uh, that he was referencing. Um, he never, re he didn't run as a DPP candidate, so the Democratic Progressive Party, which is the, the current, currently, yeah. Yeah, the, that's where Tsang Wen, uh, she's a member of that party. He ran as an independent, but they're aligned on many things. But he's a, a very kind of ardent supporter of uh, Taiwanese um independence and this actually has come out in some of their music so one mm -hmm. of their earlier albums it's a it's a narrative story of clashing spirits and ghosts between mainland china and taiwan oh dear uh, <laughs> which is actually really great because it's about these uh these mainlanders who come over and then uh have these taiwanese wives and get them pregnant and then they run back to the mainland and so oh, on and no. so forth and leave them destitute to with the child and it's these battling spirits between the two kind of sides of the Taiwan Strait and it's a great album uh, I can't remember the name of it now but I've I've got their whole discography if I had my computer able to access it I would I would tell you the name specifically um, but I mentioned it in the paper actually I believe so um, I got yeah I got interested in them uh, through listening to Taiwanese uh, underground music and, and mm. metal music and so on. And they're black metal. They're actually melodic black metal. metal. Yeah, they're, they're not. For, for listeners who are, might be interested but might be put off by them being <laughs> Scandinavian-ish. Yeah. Actually, though, that's not fair. If, if you think they're just <laughs> growling in horror, it's really not. They're quite catchy, some of their songs. They are, yeah. And then, well, they've done a lot to um, incorporate uh, traditional instruments yes. into their into their music. So you get the arhu and you get these uh, 
other instruments that I guess originate on the mainland in, in, in China proper itself and then kind of get variations and develop differently in Taiwan in terms of how they're used. Um, their face painting um, is, I guess, comes from two traditions. One, they were big KISS fans. Um, so face painting and kiss and all of that type of stuff, right? Uh, I remember growing up and they all said that kiss stood for knights in Satan's service. Um, so there's an element there, I guess, of face painting. Um, but it's also it, it also draws upon uh, Taiwanese puppet traditions. Where uh, you have puppet theater, which is really elaborate. It's not shadow puppets. It's these really elaborate puppets that they use on stage for uh, different shows. And they have this these fantastic costumes and makeup and stuff on the puppets. And they fly across the stage and so on and so forth. So it, it draws on a Taiwanese tradition as well, which is really neat. Um, so, yeah, I guess I'm a metal aficionado in a sense. Uh, there's a lot of other good bands in mm. Taiwan. Um, there's a great actual uh, from China itself called PK14, which is okay. a, is that a great Peking band. Or? Well, you, you can ask them, I guess, as oh, to okay. how they want to use it. Uh, they played a little bit at the Mao Live Bar in Beijing, if, if anybody's oh, been I, there. Yep. Um, but they are, their roots, I guess, they've actually, um, their drummer is, is European, if I remember correctly. He's, he's non-Chinese anyways. Okay. But their um, main influence would probably be Fugazi, if huh. people know who Fugazi are. Um, Chinese Fugazi. Yeah, Chinese Fugazi, yeah. So there's elements of that. So there's that kind of screeching lyrics and stuff. But they also touch on a lot of uh, sensitive issues um, in terms of, of kind of history and politics and so on and so forth. So in a sense, like... Uh, Shanling in Taiwan and I think that's mm. something that that uh, gets overlooked when people think of metal music they just think it's shouting into a microphone and you know you and, and a loud noise it's not well, really those bits are good too but those bits are great too yeah <laughs> I actually that's what I love it's just, there's nothing better than putting on something like that um, but yeah so it's, it's PK14 is a good band there are other ones as well um, so yeah I, I, I mean over my time living in Taiwan living in China um, I also got into Korean music as well, underground uh, music. They have, uh, trying to remember the name of it, it's Death, Death Records or something like that. It's um, for for metal bands and, and okay. uh, black metal and death metal bands in Korea. It's near, um, for those of you who are familiar with Seoul, it's in and around the Hongdae area. So oh, Hongik yeah. University area, the Hongdae area, there's uh, some good shows and indie music and stuff. And I think my interest in it is um, I don't like pop music that's sung in English. And when I went to Asia first, I wasn't, you know, not interested in pop music whatsoever. So it's about finding out about stuff. And it's a great way to, yeah. to meet people. Uh, and then you kind of see like, wow, there's this whole other scene that's there that's, you know, you can see uh, resemblances to what I grew up with, living, uh, you know, listening to that type of music. So, yeah, there's, I guess, it was great to kind of get into it and, and experience it. And Shanling is one of the best. Um, I still hope to see them. Although I think they're not touring so much anymore because Freddie, uh, Freddie Lim, the lead singer, is busy in office. <laughs> so uh, his time is occupied, I guess, to some extent. Well, good for him. Uh, how can one read the paper? Yes. Uh, the last bit, you'd, you'd need to get access to um, positions. 
East Asia Critique or Asia Critique as it's called now. That's the journal. Um, uh-huh. I can maybe share in some regards, but I'm not, I'm, I'm bound by copyright myself. Uh, yeah. So I have to be careful about how much I do share type of thing. Uh, but uh, it's interesting because in the paper itself, I, I don't only talk about um, Shanling. I talk about one of their albums specifically called Sadiq Bale, which was then that story is about the Musha uprising, or in Chinese, it's the Wuxia Shizian, which happened in 1930, Taiwan. And it was this uprising against the Japanese colonial right. authorities um, by uh, the Aboriginal people. It's a great story, oh. actually. It's, uh, yeah, there's different elements to it. And it's been remembered differently. Um, so Shanling does this concept album that retells the story. In the paper, I also compare a novel by uh, Wu He, a contemporary Taiwanese novelist, who uh, his novel is actually called The Remains of Life that Michael Berry just translated uh, or finally finished the translation. I think it was about a year ago. Um, and it's talking about the people who live after this uprising um, and then up into the present day. And there's other things in contemporary Taiwan issues as well, because the historical event has been remembered and memorialized differently depending on who you ask so yes. for the Aborigines, it's it was a headhunting kind of expedition um it wasn't necessarily against the japanese as such it was just simply against an invading group of people it wasn't patriotism uh, it wasn't necessarily patriotism in this in, in that kind of nation state type of idea yeah. the chinese it was an anti-colonial uprising of course and that's yep. under the red flag yeah, that's in reference actually as a, a Han Chinese kind of outlook on it. So the yep. the KMT people who who uh, fled to Taiwan in forty nine, and then for the the local Taiwanese, they saw it as also an anti colonial movement. Uh, but for them, of course, it was an anti colonial movement by actual Taiwanese. And for mm-hmm. Taiwanese, they look at colonialism having ended in nineteen eighty seven when martial law was ended by the uh, the KMT. So uh-huh. it's a very complicated type of story um, mm-hmm. that's there. And that's what I examine in the paper. And then uh, I think it was a year after the paper was published, there was a, a movie made um, as well called Rainbow Warriors of the Rainbow. Uh, it's a great film, actually, by the way, by a Taiwanese director. Okay. whose name escapes me at the moment. Um, so I'm hoping to expand that paper uh, as a chapter in my own book um, and and then kind of examine the novel, Shenling's uh, album, and then the movie as well as ways of looking at this story and looking at how it's remembered and so on and so forth. Awesome. Um, my time is kind of running out. So sure. second... Sorry, that was a kind of a long answer to no, that question. But I'm a big metal that's fan, what we so like. I love talking yeah. about it. <laughs> Well, honestly, if you ever wanted to talk about it again, <laughs> off air or on air, sure. please do. Um, I, there's more things I could say if I had the time, uh, more humble brags about which bands I've seen. <laughs> um, so, yes, penultimate question. Uh, what are you reading right now? And are there any books, uh, Chinese, Taiwanese, Korean or completely otherwise, um, that you'd like to recommend to listeners of the show? Um, so, actually, right now I'm reading... Uh... I've got an English book uh, that I've just finished, actually. Um, okay. I'm a big fan of Kim Stanley Robinson, who's a science fiction author, uh, famous oh, yes. for his uh, Mars trilogy. 
that was written in the 80s and I just finished reading actually it's an older book by him the years of uh, the years of rice and salt is that the right title the years of salt and rice one way or the other okay. but it's um it's an alternate history novel so it starts with um instead of Europe only losing half of its population with the Black Death, it actually loses about 95% of its population. So the European continent itself becomes essentially uninhabited. And then it's, mm -hmm. that's a starting point for history. And then what would, it, what would history have developed like if it weren't for, um, if the Europe was not there, basically? The Kazakhstani um, Empire, I would hope. It, well, it, yeah, it actually, the European continent becomes Islamic. Uh, and, oh, there you go. Um, it's interesting how that kind of spreads out. And China, of course, becomes much more of a, a, a player on the world stage than in, than there's no kind of dark period for China in the sense of it being, you know, a crumbling empire and taken advantage of by European colonial powers and so on mm. and so forth. Um, interestingly, the the few Europeans that are left are Scots. <laughs> well, I we are quite isolated. Up in in the, the, the British Isles, um, the Scotland, some of the population is is saved from the Black Death. Um, there's there's a Scottish comedian from Glasgow called Frankie Boyle, and he did a joke <laughs> where, when global warming coming comes, you know, we'll be. Um, England will be under the waves and we'll be laughing, sitting on the tops of our mountains, eating mangoes that we're growing. Yeah, exactly. So, um, but that's a great novel. And I just finished that one. And I'm also reading a, um, a Taiwanese novel by Song Zolai, who is okay. um, a very well-known author in Taiwan, not really necessarily well-known overseas. But uh, in the mid-80s, in 1985, um, he published this novel called Feishu uh, Taiwan, so Ruined Taiwan. Uh, and um, it's a, a nearer future story, at least when it was written in 85. And actually, most of the story takes place in 2010 and then 2015, so only a few years ago. Um, but it's the aftermath of uh, nuclear fallout in Taiwan, where the nuclear power plants um, overloaded and then contaminated parts of the island and there's you know the politics involved in telling the story of this contamination the death that's there um, mm -hmm. media kind of reportage of it and then people trying to discover the truth of the event and so on and so forth and I mean it was interesting reading this novel now because it was republished a couple of years ago in the aftermath of uh, Fukushima of course in, mm -hmm. in Japan yes uh, and so it's interesting reading this. So it's 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 an environmental novel in many ways uh, that comments on Taiwan's rapid industrialization in the 1980s, um, mm. all from this kind of future perspective from when it was written. But in a sense, it's 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 a true story because many of these things have happened. Um, and there's great worry, of course, with all the nuclear power plants in Taiwan, that that it's you know another Fukushima is just waiting to happen. Type of mm. thing. Um, I just finished my own dissertation on Chinese sci-fi and time constraints, working a part-time job and doing this thing. I wanted to, also the constraint of word count was probably the main thing. I wanted yeah. to look into and research uh, Taiwanese sci-fi because I could see there were some great novels, but I just... Yes. I sealed it off so that I would be able to complete the dissertation properly. But yeah, it sure. seems like a rich seam. Yeah, no, very much so. And then Ruined Taiwan's a great, it's a great read. It's, I'm just about finished that one as well now. Um, I always usually have about one or two or three books on the go at the same time. Uh, 
so that's a, it's a really great novel um, that would be hopefully translated one day. We'll see. Um, and then I just finished reading another one called Ground Zero, another Taiwanese novel um, that is about a similar story written by Goyin Zheng. And it's more, it's, it was written only a couple of years ago. It's actually written after Fukushima. Um, and that one also deals with this idea of, of natural calamity and disaster. Um, so it's, it's, that was a good read as well. Very interesting kind of take. But if mm. um, you are looking for Taiwanese science fiction, you should start with uh, Zhang Xiguo, who um, wrote in the 1980s mostly. He's got this uh, Cities trilogy, which is fantastic. Okay. Um, he's actually a physicist in the United States, teaches at university. Um, so it's one of those novels that it's uh, a combination of, of kind of hard science, but at the same time also um, martial arts. Oh, so it's, there you go. It's, it's really good. It's it's a really great trilogy. There is a translation of it as well, Zhang Xiguo, um, the, the city's trilogy. If you Google it, you'd be able to find it. It's a good translation as well. Um, but yeah, he's he's kind of one of the main father figures of, of, of Taiwanese science fiction, I guess. Sort of like Liu Cixin in mainland China would be. Yes. Well, thank you very much for that recommendation. Uh, here's your final question. Okay. Is there any of your own work or online platforms that you'd like to plug for um, listeners to check out? Um, <laughs> I don't have any actual work online in terms of my own writing or translations and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't really have a big online presence, to be honest. I've got my, link- my LinkedIn account and that's that's kind of it. It's great uh, news for, for your sanity. <laughs> yeah, no, I think so. I mean, I, I certainly use... Uh, online resources but i try to minimize my digital footprint as much as i can i think i'm just doing it so that something's left behind after i die basically (laughs) there there you go yeah that's that's good enough a reason i think yeah so i suppose we could recommend decoded uh your translate you and olivia's translation but from my jia that could be one for interested parties to check out and of course empires of dust Decoded and, and certainly the, the second one, uh, In the Dark. I think both of those are great novels. And of course, Empires of Dust, please oh. have a look at it. <laughs> um, and hopefully we've got um, a couple of new books coming out as well before long. So Ooh, exciting. Yeah, keep this, yeah keep this I guess keep, keep watching the space. Yeah, for sure. All right. Big thank you for Christopher for coming on the show. That was a really great interview. I really enjoyed that. Uh, our next guest in the next episode, episode 15, will also be very awesome. It is a big name, let's say. I won't spoil just who it is just yet. You can get an advance advanced preview. That's the wrong word. You can find out in advance who that will be if you follow us on Instagram, Trichofic, or if you follow my Twitter, Angus Likes Words. I'll be doing a wee announcement of the guest ahead of time for that episode uh, don't forget you can support the show on Patreon and also buy me a coffee and do tell your friends about the show, do tell your dog do tell your village chief tell your factory boss and tell your mistress if you have one if you're anything like Watson Chen, which I really hope you're not so all that said enjoy yourself until the time of the next episode and Zai Jian
城。